This is Rose Warfare, a podcast dedicated to covering war, civil unrest, working class politics, organized crime, military history, and more. Today we are talking to Johnny, a British civilian who volunteered to go to Syria and fight ISIS, and now is a soldier in the Ukrainian army, where he's on duty right now somewhere in the trenches of Donbass, facing off against Russian bad separatists. If you are fortunate enough to be able to support Rose Warfare and like our content, please do so as this is just the beginning of where this platform will go. Info is in the description. So yeah, fucking Johnny, as I'm known to like to most people, like from the Ukraine side of things, and then in, and then Syria was under a different name. But yeah, I went I went to Syria in like 2015, at like at the height of like all the fucking bullshit that ISIS was doing. Um, and if if people like followed me, like they probably like listened to like other like podcasts or interviews I've done, and like basically just sick and tired of the way that we. Uh, handled the whole ISIS thing like fucking especially after the pull pull out of like the US troops and British troops out of Iraq and there's just this power vacuum to be absorbed by uh, ISIS and we just like let it happen basically. So you joined up with the Kurds, right, to go fight. So was was this the YPG or was it the Peshmerga? Or like which one of like the three no, syllable like you know Syrian what? groups did you join? Yeah so People, people like most people, won't even realize about how complicated the political situation is over there. So you've got all these groups. You've got like Peshmerga, which is like a whole of a like can of worms in uh, north Iraq and Kurdistan there. And you've got like the Kurdish groups in like Iran, Turkey, and Syria. But I, I went to the Kurdish group in Syria, the YPG. Um, I think I arrived there around April, April fourth, I think back in 2015 and uh i think i spent a total roughly two years like on and off like in country and that time was all spent like on the front line with isis like how much of the time did you actually spend like on the front well it's it's difficult to remember because when when you go over there like the first time i went over there like just the process of getting into syria was a ball like it, it literally took me from the t- from the moment I arrived in Sulaymaniyah, like at the airport, to get smuggled across into Syria, I think it took like a month because we ended up having to wait like for the like for the smugglers to like say it's okay to get to do the crossing. Now that was a ball ache as well, um, but it's, it takes about a month. Well, it did then. It took about a month, um, and then then you get there, and at that time they just introduced like the so-called like two-week training. I won't call it training. But after the uh, two-week training, they sent us off, like, onto our units and stuff. And I think I reached the front line in, I think it was north of Talhamis. Um, it was a static position. So there wasn't really any operation going on or anything. But at the time, there was operations going on elsewhere in, in Syria. And so what was the training like? And, uh, was uh, it, like, over yeah, a month? How it was, like, it couldn't have been long, like, more than a month, right? No, the, like the training was literally two weeks max, maybe week and a half with like the rest of the days, like just waiting to leave. Um, the training was like really basic stuff. Like this is an AK. This is how you use it. This is how you take it apart. And then like some Kurdish lessons. And then, and then they took us out into the field to do some uh, guerrilla tactics, which was pretty... Uh, even even I knew like 
when when I was doing it, like coming from a civilian background, like I knew it was like pretty shitty, like tactics. What they were teaching us and the military guys that were with me all said the same thing. Like it's like what the fuck's going on? But yeah, the the training was basic, like minimum, nothing really too fancy. How much courage did they actually teach you? And uh, do you actually become fluent while you're there? Um, when I, when I was there, like when when I first arrived, like. They they teach you like roughly like you have two weeks like I mean when when you're waiting the cross like you're already learning anyway like you're like trying to learn stuff but when you get to the academy like they go a bit more in depth with it like there's someone that like teaches you like Kurdish that's already fluent in Kurdish um, like when when I was there like towards towards the end like by the time I'd finished I think my Kurdish it wasn't it wasn't like the most fluent but like I could get the message across and like understand most things but like it's not as fluent as like other people right if i if i tried to speak kurdish now like i won't be able to speak a word of it because i've just forgotten everything are you speaking ukrainian now uh a little bit like over like when i came over like because because of the uh mix of the country like you've got like a lot of people that speak russian and a lot of people that speak ukrainian and especially being in the military here, like, because the military is, like, just full of everyone. Like, you kind of, like, end up speaking, like, both languages at the same time. So, like, when, when I would be going to, like, like, the Western regions, which primarily speak, like, Ukrainian, like, they'll look at me like I'm really weird because I'm speaking to them in Ukrainian and Russian at the same time. Some bare-bones, basic, uh, like, battle tactics classes um, and learn how to take part in AK. And now you have some very rudimentary Kurdish. And after that, do they take you directly to the front? Or were you taken somewhere else with like other Westerners away from the front lines? Or how did that go? So basically what happened was when, when you'd done this training, because like, you're it's like a Westerner academy, like you say, you're with Westerners anyway. So what happens was like they tell you, like, oh, you'll be going to the front, you'll be going to your units. Like at the time, people could like, ask to be together. So like most of the time, like people would stick together. Um, but they'll go in groups and whatnot. And, and uh, when we'd leave the academy, they would take us up to uh, Karacho, which is like the big uh, logistical, like high command hub. We got bombed like back in 2017. It was all over the news. But uh, we'd, we'd get taken up there, and then uh, they'd come down with a truck from the armory and like give us our like AK, grenades, uh, like whatever we like, like basically as much ammunition as we wanted. And then we'd get sent on our way with a uh, paper note. That said where we're going to the unit and then it goes from there. So you're a Westerner now in Syria, uh, about to head to the front lines. So how did so how did you actually end up in Syria? How did you end up in country? Is there like an application online? How was like the process to actually join the YPG before like before you even got on the plane? So when when I saw this stuff kicking off with ISIS, like this was like I've been following the Syrian war like since the start and whatnot, and it wasn't till like late 2014 that I saw the first information about like Westerners like fighting against ISIS. Did I did more research when when I saw about it, and eventually I found like a source that could get you into the country. And like looking back to it, like it was like pretty simple, pretty easy to do. Like you just find the person on Facebook, or you find like a Kurdish uh, person, and like nine times out of ten, like, they would know where to, like, put you in contact with. And uh, you would contact this said person, say you want to join, 
and then they'll like get, they'll send you a whole like message like about like what to expect like are you sure you want to do this and stuff like that and like when when you uh, buy the ticket like like you you show them that you bought the ticket so like you know you're not wasting their time like uh, they give you the details of like who you need to meet when like when you land and like they give you a list of like what to bring like what you're gonna need like uh, like warm gear and stuff and when when you do land um, the YPG like handler he'll meet you at the airport or should do he, he didn't meet me I had to get a taxi to the house and then when, when you get there like it's just like a safe house for like westerners so there's like all these other westerners in there like people that are leaving or people that arrive and you, you just like sit in there waiting till you get told to go and uh, I think it was like after a few days they came to us and I said like get ready like we're leaving tonight and, uh, and then then we got shoved into a uh, Toyota and then driven to the uh, Kurdish mountains like in, in the dead of night was, like you had to go for all these Peshmerga checkpoints which was uh, which was a bit ball achy because like if we get caught by the Peshmerga like trying to go to Syria like they they give us a hard time like you might even get sent to jail like for a couple of days before they deport you luckily we didn't have any issues with that because most of the time the uh, checkpoint guards are corrupt and you just the Kurds just pay each other off but yeah when, when we reached the mountain camp I think we spent about a month there just like waiting to like cross and when, when, when they did like back then like it used to be like two people at a time so like they'll send two westerners at a time with a bunch of other Kurds, and then uh, then it was our time to come. So when we did cross, it was just us two, and then just a bunch of uh, guerrillas that crossed uh, over into Syria. And the crossing itself is like all like it's just it's just like a pain in the ass to do because like it's like six hours or something. Yeah, so you have to cross the Tigris River. So when when you go over there, the Kurds they want uh, one of the Kurds like they. Because they, they they do this all the time, so they're prepared. Like there's like a couple of guys that carry the inflatable boat, so like they carry it like, and then when they get to the river, like they start pumping it up, and they just use like a bike pump. So like, the most loud noise you'll ever hear, like when they're pumping it up, and like you're trying to like stay quiet and stuff, because like you don't want to get caught by the border guards. But yeah, anyway, like they they get the boat up, and then you cross over the Tigris River, reach the other side, and then you still got to be like careful not to be seen, because like. You don't want to get shot at or anything. And then I think it was like another hour walk and uh, we got picked up by a Toyota and then taken to the uh, YPG uh, HQ before being sent to the academy. All right. So you finished the, you know, the Westerners Academy. So are you sent to the front line immediately after? Yeah. So when, when you complete the academy, well, at least back then, when, when you completed it, they sent you straight to the front line. Back then, you could, you could ask like where you want to go. But when, when I, because it was my first time, I didn't really know too much like how the system worked. I just I just said, I want to go to the front. So they just sent me to the front uh, with like, I think it was like four other guys or six other guys. And we got sent to our unit together. And we're just on a defensive position, just doing guard duty and maybe the odd Dushika fire from, from ISIS, really. Do you remember the first it, time it that you ever came under fire? Uh, yeah, it was. I was on guard duty um, on the uh, position we had. It was like a house, and they'd built a berm around it with a ditch, so like they couldn't like attack it with a car bomb or anything. Well, I was just on guard duty like one day, like one evening, and uh, ISIS just started shooting the uh, dishikaras. 
I think I think it was a district cut. It was maybe the twenty-three millimeter. But it wasn't anything like super crazy. It was just like a few odd shots and maybe the odd like mortar round. But it wasn't like super crazy crazy. It was just like something small scale. So do you remember how you felt when that happened? Like, I'm, so was there ever a moment where you questioned like, why am I? How did I get here? Maybe this was a mistake. Well, I actually, when when we were going to the front, um, like we'd got we got to the transit point in Talhamis, and then the car came from our unit to take us to the front, like like the car from our unit, and like we're driving to the front. And I was like thinking to myself, like fuck, like, I'm actually here, yeah, like I'm actually going to the front. I was like shit myself at the time, but I was like. But this is what I've came, this is what I've come to do. I've come to do a job, and it wasn't till uh, when I got shot at that I was, I was like, "This is kind of fun." I mean, I was, I was I was shitting myself, but I was like, "This is what I'm here for." Like, you can't cower out. You can't like get scared now and like go home. Like, you got a job to do. I said you were gonna do. So you probably were doing guard duty for a while, but how long was it till you went on your first like operations or like offensive? Probably. Probably after, well, we we got we got like really bored on that position. Like we were like turning on the TV, like just look watching the Kurdish news, and uh, there was like news of like the operation that was going on in Tautama, and we were like getting super frustrated because like, I mean, yeah, we're we're defending a, a front line, but like when when you like in the middle of the desert, like super isolated and all that like nothing's going on like you start getting like really like frustrated because like nothing is going on and you see all this stuff that's going on like action and stuff and you want to get to it and so eventually i think i think we gave it like two more weeks after being there for three weeks and uh like our, our, the kurds at the time they kept saying there was going to be an a uh, operation to take al hall which was like not far from that area but then it just kept turning into like tomorrow, tomorrow we go, and it just never ended up happening. So me and a few others, we decided to go back to, well, we we decided to ask like to be sent back to the academy so we could uh, be resent to somewhere else where, where there's an operation. And when when we got back there, the they just started like they I think they finished the operation in Tautama and they started the second phase of the operation towards Kobani. Because at the time, the Kobani uh, and uh, Jezera uh, Canton weren't connected because it was all ISIS territory. So we we just got got onto the backbone of that as they were pushing forward. So we got sent there, and we we ended up getting into a unit, and uh, we managed to get just just before they got to Talabia, we managed to get to a unit like just outside, and then uh, that's that's where we saw like our first like proper like combat like. So I've seen the video on Instagram, which is pretty fucking badass video. It's 2017 in Jezera, and you're on live news, and you say to ISIS fighters, um, "My message goes to uh, the Dash fighters that probably are watching this. Um, you've got nowhere to go. You've got nowhere to hide. Your exit routes are cut off, and the SDF are coming hard for you. And you've got two options: you can either surrender or you can die." Um, so you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. What's the story there? Did the press just come up to talk to you because you were like uh, a Westerner? Well, the uh, the journalist I interviewed me at the time it was a Kurdish journalist. I can't I can't remember. I think it was for some Kurdish uh, news network. 
and they were just interviewing like asking me what my thoughts were about like about Turkey and stuff like that what what happened because this this one this this is Jezra this is um it's similar sounding to Jezera um but this one was in 2017 on my second tour so pre previously like when I went back home I I got arrested for terrorism and all that stuff so I was like talking about the situation and then I like, spoke a bit about like the political issues like that my foreign volunteers were facing back home wait you got arrested then, for terrorism uh, when you went back home yeah two times so was it immediately when you got off the plane? Like, were they waiting for you? Like, they, they knew you had gone off and joined the YPG to fight, you know, uh, and then, like, probably the worst people in, in modern existence, you know, ISIS. Yeah. And you got so, arrested on terrorism charges. So when, when I first returned, like, they, they literally, like, they didn't even let me get off the plane. Like, they just came on the plane with, like, uh, armed anti-terror police. There, there was a passenger that was sat next to me. I didn't, I didn't know who he was at the time. And me turned out to be like a Royal Jordanian Air Mar- Marshal, which surprised me. But yeah, they just treat me like I was like a proper, like full-on terrorist. Um, I think I think their initial fear was that I was like an ISIS member that was like maybe trying to do a cover story to be like try and like get back into Britain like unnoticed or something like that. But then when I came back the second time, they did the same thing. It wasn't it wasn't as uh, dramatic as it was the first time. Like I did tell them like. Let me get off the plane. Like, if you're going to arrest me, I don't want any like drama. So they did at least let me get off the plane before anything like that happened. So were the charges dropped, or were you interrogated? What happened after? What What they did was never um, charge me. They arrested me under pre me. And basically, what that means is that I've not been charged with anything. Like, they don't have any evidence to say that I've committed any like uh, terrorist acts or anything. I'm, I've just got suspicion. Well, the, the problem with that is that it means they can put me on bail where I have to like sign on at the police station like three times a week. And also they can take my passport, like fucking like ID. They can, they took all my electronics. Um, so any, any sort of like normal life I wanted to try and get back into, like they made it extremely difficult because I had no form of identification. Like, like in Britain, if you don't have, if you don't have your passport in Britain, like it's going to be very difficult to like, try and get a bank account or basically just do the most basic things that a normal person could do. And then eventually, I think it was like after eight months, uh, my lawyer like, eventually got them to like drop the uh, whole bail. And then uh, I was still in investigation, but like the whole like uh, restrictions were like dropped and stuff. And, there was, and then I got given my passport back. And then like, I think I was literally like within three weeks of having my passport back, I was like back in Kurdistan. Wow. What, what did your family and friends think when you got back? And, you know, I'm pretty sure they, they took you even going there pretty hard, but then you getting arrested on terror charges as soon as you get back. Well, a lot of my friends and family, they, they were supportive because like, they knew like what I was out there. Like they knew what I was out there and what I was doing from previous like interviews I'd done. And uh, when I got back, like a lot of people were like, I wouldn't say like they were like super bothered, bothered, but like they were angry with the way like the British government like treated me and like not just me, like many other like volunteers as well. Like a lot of us were just treated like like we're proper like full on terrorists. Were they trying to make an example out of you to try and discourage other people? Yeah, uh, I like to think that, but like then I look at like some of my other friends who just came back. Like one uh, one of my friends, um, he went out there like and then he came back he had no problems whatsoever the police just had a chat with him at the airport like just see if they could get any information about like isis or anything he'd come across over there 
Um, so it depends. It, it depends on like which uh, area of the police you're dealing with. So it's actually lucky that like I'm interviewing you today because you actually head back to the front lines tomorrow. Front lines in Donbass, right? Yeah. So uh, like tomorrow, I go back. I've been on like vacation for like the past month. It's like the only vacation I've had really since since I signed my contract like two years ago. Um, so yeah, I, I go back tomorrow. I go back to work. It should be. Does fun. it feel like? Does it feel like you're just going back to work? Like at this point. It's got to be some sort of nerve-wracking feeling. Like, you are headed back to the front lines, and uh, you've been on vacation for a month, you know, taking a break from it. Yeah, uh, it just feels like it's going back to work. I mean, yeah, it's the front line and whatnot. Well, like, you kind of get used to the, uh, the whole, like, danger side of it. Like, you get used to it. It's just another day in the office. Another day in the office. So... Uh, I should clarify for listeners, like, Johnny is actually now in Ukraine. So we're, we're talking about his time in Syria. But actually, after his time in Syria, he ended up going back home and then joining the Ukrainian army. So how did you go from getting back from the war, you know, in Syria and living a normal life at home to the Ukraine? Yeah, so, so when, when I went back, like, after my second time, I went back, I... I, I try to get like I try to get a normal job and like fit back in. But I was like, I can't do this. It's like too fucking. Like, w- w- once you go out to Syria and you see all like you see the reality of life and shit like that, like you kind of realize like you can't really go back to a normal life after that. And while while I was in Syria, like I'm, I met a friend. He was in Ukraine previously, and he, he told me a bit more about like what was going on here because like. Like way back, like when the Ukrainian conflict started, I used to be like pro. I wouldn't say I was like pro separatist, but I, I had more sympathetic like feelings and understandings for the uh, separatists. And like while I was in Syria, like I got talking with my friend, and he actually like kind of convinced me like the separatists are actually the arseholes, basically. Which um, I did more research into research the conflict a lot more, and then uh, decided after I came back because. After I came back, the police like basically said to me, "If I uh, if I go back to Syria, like I'm probably going to be charged next time I come back." So I was like, "Okay, then I won't go back to Syria. I'll just go to Ukraine." So, in your time in Syria, do you remember the first time that you saw um, like an ISIS soldier up front? You know, it's like whether it's a prisoner of war or like a dead body. You know, after all this time, you know, in the media, or you know, just in general, you know, ISIS are the most terrible. You know, people ever. They release those videos. You know, them beheading people, setting people on fire, and then you actually, you know, see them like face to face. What what was that like? The the first dead bodies we saw that was on the way to Talabia, and we're like driving down this long ass road. Like you could tell, like the battle had literally just been there a few days ago, and we're like driving down this road, and you can see like these two bodies like just like left on the side of the road. Like it's just like so weird. They've just been left there to decompose. And so that, that that was like our first like sight of like dead bodies. I wasn't sure if they were like civilians or if they were like ISIS. But one, once we got to the uh, unit that we got to, when we like got into a bit of fighting between between the uh, ISIS guys that were on the bridge that we were trying to take, one once the airstrikes had been called and they obliterated like their position. Like I think it was the next day when well later that evening we pushed forward. We took the bridge. And it was the next day when, when it was light and uh, like some of the groups had gone forward. So it was safe to like look around our position to see, see where, like, if there was any like 
dead dash like lying around from the previous night and there's like a couple of bodies like scattered about from the airstrike that like destroyed them so i think that would be pretty much the first time we saw like the dead dash guys and it, it was it was weird because like when when we saw them like you see them on like on the internet and uh, you, you know what these guys are like believing and all that shit, all the crazy shit that they fucking like would do to you, like if they were alive right now. It was it was weird. Like you didn't feel any, uh, you didn't feel bad for them, but like you kind of like felt like like this is where their life ended. When was the first time you saw like uh, an ISIS captured, you know, person? I've seen those videos online of like Kurdish soldiers, like you know, either beating the shit out of like some captured, you know, ISIS POW. I've even like seen a video like of a like a Kurdish man, you know, making a ISIS POW re a tattoo of his that said he's Kurdish, you know. So how yeah, was yeah. when you first saw like ISIS, an ISIS member like alive in person? Like, did you just want to beat the shit out of them for what they'd done, or like to ask them um, how how they could get to this point? I can't. I can't remember. I know. I know. I met some in 2015. I can't remember exactly though. The ones I do remember like are from when I was in twenty seventeen and I met like a shit ton like at Tabta. We met one we met one foreigner, he was a Tunisian ISIS fighter. We just fucking hated him, he was a cunt. We like tried to ask him if he had any information about like if there's anyone in the city. Try to get any like, because at the time like he was just like being kept, like he wasn't being taken away and we're like trying to see if there's other foreigners in the city. So we're just like asking him, like, is there any like foreigners there? And at the time, he like tried to pretend we didn't, he didn't speak English and all that. So we just pretended we were like the Americans and stuff like that. It was like, just tell us, like, do you know if there's any like foreigners, like anything we need to know, like anything that can make this job easier? And then the next day, like, I think, I think around like 30, 30 like ISIS fighters surrendered. And they brought them back to like the uh, fob that we're at at the time. Cause we were like on rotation from the city, so uh, like these thirty ISIS guys came. Like they were all locals. Uh, they were all from like Tabco. Like they weren't really. I mean, uh, you'll never know if they were there for, really for the ideology or not. But like, because because they were locals, like we didn't really like hate them. Like we just uh, understood like they're just in this situation. Like there's not much they can do. Because like what else are you going to do when you've got your family in that and you live there and you can't really leave the place without being killed by them so like there was some sort of sympathy towards the local fighters yeah i can see, definitely see some sympathy toward like the locals because they just get fucked in that situation completely getting caught in the whole yeah. way of you know the black you know the black flags going up around them but you know when it comes to like americans or like said tunisians or british people going off to, to join because they have that hatred that ideology that they care about enough to you know to go in a way like they care enough about the way you, you cared about, you know, standing up to ISIS and defending, like, innocent people. They had that hatred, like, passionate enough to almost do the same as you did in terms of, you know, going online, talking to someone, and then going to take that plane. You know, they probably had some extremely similar feelings to you when it was, you know, heading to the front lines and all. And they did it completely out yeah. of hatred and, like, this ideology they well, subscribe to. I mean, although, like, I mean, the majority, I would say, like, the majority of locals, like, they, they just did it because, like, they needed a job. But, like, there was, like, quite a lot of, like, locals as well that were, like, like straight up, like, hatred and all that. And the, when, when we were pushing through the city in Tabka, um, we ended up pushing into this, like, 
like uh, neighborhood and we had to take we had to like go in this house to take up position and the door was locked and at the time there was a family like just hiding from like the fighting that was going on outside which was like pretty surreal but yeah, our commander, he uh, knocked on the door, like, he like, told him, like, we have to come in, like, we need to take up position on the roof. And at the time, the uh, the head of the family, like, this old, like, like Arab dude, like, had a big, like, white beard and whatnot. He was, like, being super friendly and, like, saying, like, all the usual, like, oh, so glad you're here. Being assertive with him, but, like, not being, like, too much of a cunt with him. And, like, while he's talking with him, like, he's, like, asking, like, do you know, like, if there's any, like, do you know anything, like, where the ISIS fighters went, or have you heard anything, anything like that? And while this is happening, like, uh, one of the other, one of the other guys in our unit, like, one of the Arabs, it was, like, just having a quick look through the building just to make sure there's nothing, like, suspicious, and, like, he, he managed to find a, uh, a jacket that had uh, Hizba, like, written on the back of it, which is basically the Islamic uh, Sharia police. And like, he brought that in, and then he like found an ISIS flag and found a pistol, and he brought that in, and like our commander like just lost. He was like, "What the fuck? Like, 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 why did you lie to me? Like, I come in, I come in here like being truthful with you and all that, and you lie lie to my face." But I was I was surprised because I was I was surprised by how restrained it was. I mean, the guy the guy that got caught out like he he got caught out being ISIS. Like, he's fucked. He's probably in Guantanamo Bay. Or somewhere similar like that right now but i was surprised by like how restrained like like the guys were like no one no one like ever like tried. it was like a lot of shouting but it was never like oh we're gonna kill you and all that stuff like it was like quite humane in regard what was the most intense fighting you took part in like the entire time you were in syria i'll probably say um, i'd like to say Probably Tabka. In Tabka, we never we never really got into any like any fights like, specifically. We had like a lot of like fucking like those those are shits on the ISIS in the city. But the majority of like we got lucky when we were pushing in from our side, um, because when we were pushing in, we had like the support of the uh, coalition. Like so, we had the gunships and whatnot like flying above, like just bombing the fuck out of them. And yeah, like the uh, marine like artillery, like just fucking barraging like fucking positions of isis um so what, when we pushed into the city we i mean the only the only real threat we had was like snipers and uh, car bombs that we encountered uh, we never really got into any engagements there just just snipers and whatnot but it wasn't till i think maybe hasika and at, at the time like isis when 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 isis like took parts of hasika back in 2015 we were sat on a position like in a school. You had like the Syrian regime to the right, and then you, you had ISIS in front of us, and like they were back and forth. Um, we're, we're probably maybe 300, 400 meters from ISIS. It was it was really weird because like they would mortar us, but they would never really get into a direct like fight with us. Like uh, they were focusing their attention on the uh, regime, which was weird. And like they were like right next to us, like maybe a few streets to the right of us. So I'd, I'd say that was like intense, like. So to speak, in some regard, Talabit, we had like a couple of engagements, but once we like got past the uh, the outskirts of the city, like the whole defense lines just collapsed, and a lot of them just like fled across the border to Turkey. And then in Tabka, like like I was saying, like we got really lucky with the air support, like on our side, compared to the other guys that I've spoken with, like they came from the uh, right side of the city, they got into quite a lot of contact with them. 
but like as we as we push forward through the city, like a lot of the ISIS fighters were just like retreating like back into the uh, like center of the city, like just to try and regroup and whatnot. Um, there wasn't really any like heavy, heavy like firefights that I was in with ISIS. Just like the odd like shooting back and forth snipers and car bombs, really. What was the main difference between the war in Syria and like your experience fighting in Ukraine? Well, I'd say the big difference in Syria is it's all operational, but you, you, you're constantly on the move. Like, whereas in Ukraine, I mean, although the situation here, it could change, like, at a moment's notice, but, like, in, in Ukraine, like, you're literally just manning trenches, like, it's, like, straight up, like, World War One stuff, like, you're living in a trench for, like, the majority of your time, like, in the uh, front line. And um, when, when I arrived to... A position last year like it's it's kind of poetic in a way um so basically like you, you get into fights like well you did before the new ceasefire so before the new ceasefire like last year and the, the years before that you'd be on your position like you would have your position like separatists would be like maybe 200 400 meters away from you and it, it's really weird because um you fight each other but it's it's kind of a mutual in some regards, it could you could like depending where you are, there's like sort of a mutual agreement where like we don't shoot each other like in the daytime, and then like as soon as like eight pm and like nighttime hits, like that's when we just start shooting each other. So like you're living in these like positions for like months on end, whereas like in Syria, like you're being like you might be in a house like max like a couple of hours to like a couple of days, and you'll be out of there like pushing forward. What kind of weapons did you get to fire in uh, Ukraine? I think the majority of the weaponry that I've seen is like all the typical like Soviet era weaponry, like the AK-74, the RPG, um, like the Dishika heavy machine gun, and like the uh, grenade launcher, the Soviet grenade launcher. Um, there isn't really too much like of a range to pick from. Like it's just mainly Soviet stuff, really. In your time in Ukraine, do you think uh, most of your fighting? has been with Russian, actual, like, Russian Spetsnaz or Little Green Men? Or have they, have they been with, like, local separatists? Um, I think the majority of it's been with just uh, local separatists. Um, like, the, the only time, like, if, if you ever had to deal with it, I mean, this is just from my, from my opinion, but, like, I think the only time, you, if you ever knew you were dealing with, like, Russian, like, soldiers and stuff, like, there would be a lot more like increase in activity that was going on. Like for example, like uh, in my in my area, like we never really had like any heavy artillery barrages. But like uh, I've got like friends like they were in like another area area of the uh, front line, and like the, the artillery accuracy would be like a hell of a lot more like dead on. Like they would like come on a position and like it'd just be so spot on. Like it it'd be like so professional, so to speak. Like compared to like like the separatists who just use like the mortars like really bad. I mean, they, I mean, they'll hit your position, but like it won't be as accurate as like Russian like mortar or artillery systems. So you can kind of like differentiate between like separatists and the professionals. What's like the biggest thing you have to like watch out for when you're like on the front? Like, is it IEDs? Is it mines, drones? Well, well here, here in Ukraine, the biggest thing you've got to watch out for is definitely snipers because that, that is the big killer out here. Like, 
like there's always like there's always someone watching your position because we're always watching their position because we know where they are and they know where we are so there's always someone watching us but um now the new ceasefire like there's not as many deaths like, i think we've only had like three deaths since the new ceasefire like was signed uh, like back in july but before that like uh, snipers were definitely definitely one of the biggest killers here um artillery or mortars um but then again you've got to be somewhere where there's like a lot of active artillery going on and i'd, I'd say mines as well if you don't know where they are sometimes like the separatists will like send in like teams to like plant uh mines like in your trenches or like behind your trenches on the paths you use and then there's also the threat from drones as well because they'll use the drones to like drop grenades and stuff like that uh did you see drones using syria yeah, uh, so the first time I saw the drones used was when I was in Tabka. Um, before that, I had no, like, I'd seen them like on the ISIS propaganda videos, but like, it, like I saw them in Tabka for the first time. That's when I like realized like now they've got like a new weapon to use against us. They drop grenades or do they explode? I've heard stories like you know, like with C four packed onto like little drones being exploded. The only, the only drones that I encountered in Syria were. Either the ones that dropped the grenades, which they they did a few times, like but by the by the time like you know there's a drone, like you're already in cover, so like by the time they drop it, like you're in cover anyway, so you're not too much like exposed. But um, most of the time, they would use a drone to like uh, guide a car bomb, like into uh, like into an enemy uh, position or something. So I remember when when we got hit with a car bomb, like we we're walking down the street, and uh, I've got it on video. Um, but like after after the car bomb happened, there was a drone flying about, and uh, we we saw it, and it was like just checking us out for like a good like minute or so, and we wasn't sure who it was, and then we saw it like just fly back towards like the ISIS positions. So why did you actually go from Syria to Ukraine? Was the civilian life just not right for you? Yeah, so w when I went back, like, I just couldn't really get back into a normal civilian job. And like when when I was there, like also like the, the police said like not to go back to Syria because if I come back I'll be charged. So I was I was like fuck you guys, and then I just I can go to Ukraine because I saw like like I said like I had a friend there like he told me a bit about the conflict, so I did more research into it and uh, supported the Ukrainian side from from my research. And then I looked into it more and I saw that the uh, president of Ukraine at the time that like they signed a new law lab and foreigners to like enlist in the military officially like in a legal capacity so once i saw that i was like okay i'm gonna go do that like um what else am i gonna do like not really much else i can do like i've had from syria so like when when i came to ukraine um i think it, i think it took us like a couple of months until like we uh found like where we needed to be so we just ended up going to the military recruitment center signed a contract like went for the medical and then we went for like two months basic training with the ukrainian marines i should mention as well what was ukrainian basic training like and was it do they have like some sort of is it like syria where there was at least like some sort of unit for westerners or do they just throw you into the conventional army no, so when when you join, like you're joining the conventional army. So um, when when we joined, like it was me and a couple of friends that had been in Syria. Um, we signed a contract, like we went through the whole medical process. Like you had to get like a full medical, um, and then you had to like uh, do some other legal paperwork. Like you had to get some 
stuff from the lawyer to like say you're here legally and there's no criminal record um and then you get sent to uh you get your documents and you get sent to basic training which is like two months um i mean it's not it's not bad i mean it is bad but it's not like bad bad it's like i'll, I'll just say it's like basic like basic soldier training like to an extent like within the ex-soviet like military system i mean there's there's still a lot that they need to improve on which they are doing through the reforms and stuff like that but like it's still got a, a bit to go before it becomes like up to nato standard do you think if uh, the war in ukraine wasn't like hadn't been happening you would have just looked for some other conflict or you would have even became like a mercenary if they still had like the ability to join the Ukrainian military here, still, I probably would have still come to Ukraine, just just so I can like get like somewhere to live. Like cause at, at the time, I didn't want to live in Britain anymore. Like especially after what I've been through, and decided if I'm going to go to another country, like I might as well sign, like sign up with the military if they allow it, and like earn my uh, citizenship through that way. I did, I did look at doing the French Foreign Legion, but like. When when I was in Syria, like I, I had a lot of friends that like were there, but like deserted the French Foreign Legion. They just like they just like said like avoid it at all costs. Like do not go there. I think I knew like five six guys that were like in the Legion that like fucking either deserted or like there was one guy he he was there. He did like his four five years, and um, even he said like it's not it's not worth it you just be scrubbing a toilet like in some fucking shitty place in Paris like in France and doing that for the reminder of your contract probably did you meet a lot of like uh like you obviously met French Foreign Legion do you meet any like American Ed Special Forces guys or you know SAS or anything like that um I met, I met a lot of uh ex-US military and uh ex-British military not, not, not too sure about if there was anyone that was XSF or anything, because like anyone can say they're fucking SAS and all that shit, which we had a lot of. Like a lot of people would say like there's some sort of SF group, and then they would get found out that they're just full of shit. So were there a bunch of, like bullshitters saying they were like Rangers or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like quite, quite a few people that would come by, they'd say like they, they were like in the Rangers and stuff. We had one guy like we called him like a Power Ranger just because. All the bullshit he said about being ex-military and all that stuff. Yeah, there, there was another there, there was another guy I was speaking about, like in one of my podcasts. Um, he said he was like ex-military, and he was just got complete fucking retard. Especially in an embarrassment when we did end up meeting like the SF, like American guys and shit. Just ended up embarrassing us. Yeah, so we were heading to this base that the Americans were building on our base. And like we we wandered over because like we wanted to try and get some MREs from them, but when when we got over there, like as soon as we saw the first American, like this guy like wanders over like towards them, like the American doesn't even notice us, like he doesn't notice us until this guy like just like throws his hands up, he's like, "U.S. friendly, don't like don't shoot." Continued to embarrass us by like talking all this bullshit to this like SF guy. He's like, "Who the fuck are these guys?" Now, what was he saying to the SF guys? Just, just fucking stupid shit. Like um, he ended up saying to him, um, like, "Oh, I'm ex-US military. I uh, did my tour down in Texas." And I think, if I remember correctly, he he ended up actually turning out to be some fucking uh, Air Force security guard or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when people say tour down in Texas, they're talking about getting deployed to the Mex- U.S. Mexican border, where they literally just like 
bullshit and smoke cigs for like three months. No, no, he 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 was it was on some sort of airbase where he just like patrolled the perimeter of the airbase like as security. Do, do you think uh, like all the uh, of the Westerners that you met while you were over there in Syria? How many do you think were actually there to just like because they cared about the Kurdish people and like struggle or? How many were actually there just to, you know, they wanted to fight. They wanted to experience war, almost like war tourism, or just, like, get clout for their Instagram? I'd, I'd say I'd say the majority of, like, people I met over there, there was a majority that were out there for, like, the same reasons. Like, they were there to, like, support the Kurdish people and, uh, like, fight ISIS, like, like, fucking, def- like, defeat tyranny and all that bullshit. But then there was also, like, a, a couple of people I'd met, like, that were obviously there just, just to fight, but they didn't really give a shit about what happened. Um, they didn't really last too long. They ended up, like, one guy I knew, like, he ended up just leaving as soon as he got to the front line. And then there was the other group, like, uh, just people that shouldn't be there at all, like, that were complete liability, basically. We're a lot there for, like, how many, like, political people were, like, politically active? From my understanding... Like the, all the Kurdish troops over there used to accept way more people who wanted to come over volunteers. And nowadays they ask like more political like questions. Like, why is that? Like, we're just yeah. too many ship eggs or too many liabilities? Yeah, basically, like back, back in like 2015, like, like Westerners, they, they had a shit ton of freedoms like compared to like what they would have like in uh, 2017. Like in 2015, like you could go, you could ask to go to the uh, city for the day, and like you won't have to have like someone with you. Like you could like ask, like, like I want to get picked up here. Like you'd arrange like a pickup point, and you could like walk around the city if you wanted to, as long as as long as you were with someone else and you had your weapon with you, obviously. But um, eventually, like some some other Westerners like were like just shitbags, like caused problems and like stuff just started getting a lot more stricter, and and eventually, it wasn't till I think it was. I think it was like towards the end of like after Raqqa had finished, uh, when when Afrin started. Like from what friends have told me, like that's when they started taking a lot more political people. Like they got rid of like the majority of like ex-military guys and stuff like that. Um, I'm not too sure the reasoning behind it, but I think a lot of it is down to like a lot of shitbags that like cause problems and whatnot. Uh, what was your like opinion, like your uh, thoughts on the Kurdish struggle going on, like in Rojava when you were there? I support it. Uh, when when I was there, I was like quite politically like involved, and and all that. Like uh, I still I still believe like the Kurds like deserve a homeland, and still believe that Rojava should be independent and stuff like that. Um, but uh, there's there's still still some parts of it I, I don't agree with, like to an extent. But the majority of it I do agree with. Um, like looking back on it, and. I, I was like really pissed off like when the Americans pulled out of like fucking Sarakani area and just basically like let the Turks like just like walk on in and like just fucking kill all the Kurds that like literally done the jobs that the Americans and the coalition should have done like years ago and they basically just like tossed them aside. Yeah, it's pretty fucking bullshit. I think that like we we say we get Americans, you know we. I'm American. We, you know, we say we go to war because we want to defend freedom and we want to, you know, you know, freedom, freedom, freedom. You know, we know it's all for oil in the end. You know, that's the main goal. But we say we're there for freedom. We say that we're there to nation build. And then we actually end up, we go to Rojava, you know, we effectively use our Air Force to help, you know, the fight, the Kurdish fighters, you know, destroy, you know, Dash, destroy ISIS. 
and they're actually building a actual like working society with a working structure with a democratic government that like apparently cares about basic gender equality and all the things you know which are extremely rare like in you know certain parts of the middle east and we just abandoned them we gave up on that project because you know of erdogan and trump we just abandoned them and it's like why are we even there like leaving before the job is done and I remember, like, when one point, like, one of the fobs I was at on the Jezra operation, there was the American soldiers and, like, the SF that were based there. I mentioned about it in the past in, like, previous interviews and, like, posts and shit. But there was one soldier that, like, stuck out to me, like, with, with like, how he, like, looked at the Kurds. And, like, we're just talking about, about like, just general shit and, like, the, like, because he, he said he was, he'd been in the army for, like, years and shit, like he was in Afghanistan. And like I asked him the question, I was like, "So like, since since you've been in Syria, like you've worked with the Kurds and whatnot, like how is the experience of working with the Kurds compared to working with the ANA in Afghanistan?" And like he just straight up said, "Like the Afghanistan Afghan National Army, like you cannot trust them. Like they, those guys, like one day they're your friend, the next day like they're like going to shoot you." Whereas like with the Kurds, like he's like, so he he, he was saying like he loved the Kurds and all that because like. The Kurds compared to the Afghan National Army, like the Afghan National Army, like they're just one minute the fucking Taliban and the next minute like the so-called National Army. And he he said himself, like, because I said to him, like, with all the money that's gone into the military, I asked him, like, who do you trust more, like, in in like a situation? And he said, like, he would rather anyone from there. So, how much interactions did you have with like actual American troops, but? Like, did you on the ground get to call in any of the airstrikes? No, I don't. I don't think I did call in any airstrikes. I did get that opportunity when they were in Raqqa, but because I left just just before they started the offensive into the city, like I never got that like opportunity to see it. But um, I saw I saw a lot of the Kurds, like like the Kurdish commanders, they called in like airstrikes on positions, like they'd give like the geo coordinates, like through the radio and then the rate the uh the receiving end would send it onto the coalition and then like maybe 20 minutes later like an airstrike would come along and just demolish the position this is where a connection deteriorated and we had to end the conversation prematurely it was disappointing but this is still was one of the most interesting conversations i've had all year you can follow johnny on instagram at cosac gundy at c-o-s-s-a-c-k-g-u-n-d-i where he posts frequently about his daily life at war in ukraine where currently there's a ceasefire along with stories and writings of his pastime in Syria. Thank you for listening to our first ever podcast. Follow us on Instagram at rose.warfare and keep an eye out for the next episode where we'll be talking to Danny Gold. Danny is an esteemed writer, filmmaker, and war correspondent who has reported from all over the world on topics like MS-13 in South America to making an award-winning documentary about the Ebola outbreak, and he was one of the few journalists to report from inside the ISIS-besieged city of Kobani. Guests like Danny and interesting topics will be on every week. I have plans on episodes about everything from the Mexican Revolution, possible weekly news updates, talking to Portland activists, the troubles of Northern Ireland, talking to union members and leaders about labor issues, and so much more you're going to want to hear. See you all next week. Music used in this episode is Amsterdam by Lasers.